Good morning, everybody. Hey, that was good. Fine start. Uh, let's continue in uh, in similar vein. We'll uh, sing our first hymn together, which is "Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, to His Feet Thy Tribute Bring." After which, if you remain standing, we will continue in prayer. Dear Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the many blessings which you bestow upon us day by day. Lord, we thank you for this time of fellowship that we can share with you, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and with each other. And Lord, we pray that through our experience and through our relationships, you will build us up and help us to be more Christ-like each and every day. Lord, we are ever conscious that the world is in need of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and we see in so many different ways how that need manifests itself in the world today. The injustice that people suffer, the famine, the disease, the poverty and the war. And so Lord we pray that you will send your son back that his kingdom your kingdom will be restored once again yet Lord until that time we pray that you will use us that we may be imitators of God imitators of you that we may be like the Lord Jesus Christ showed us when he lived on this earth. And so, Lord, as we stand together now, we pray that everything that we say and do during this morning's service will be to your glory. And through what we experience, we may come to know you more and be empowered to do your will. Continue to bless us, Lord. For we ask it through Jesus. Amen. Andy will uh, come now and uh, give us our announcements. Tim, I know Tim. Tim's exhorting for us. Sue and Johnny, welcome. I'm sorry about that. That's more embarrassing for me than it is for you. So welcome to the Webhorn family. Um, and welcome to you all this morning. It's great to see you all together. I'm checking, I haven't missed any other visitors. It's great to see Jeff as usual. Oh, and to the, the Stand-Evens, yes. Welcome to you as well. Uh, I don't have a list of care announcements. I have picked up the email regarding Zoe Dean, so I'll just let you know we, we've been praying for Zoe Dean as she's been waiting for uh, some, some test results to find out how her treatment was going. The... The news this week is that she is responding to the chemo and she's, so she's seeing that as positive news. She's going to continue the treatment and uh, she, she gives praise and thanks to God that that's the case and also wants to thank people for their prayers. So we'll keep Zoe Dean in our prayers but also um, pleased that, that God is working through that treatment. So does anyone else have anyone they would like me to mention in our pastoral prayer? Okay, uh, if you just remain where you are, I'll, uh, I'll offer a prayer for people we've remembered.
Almighty God, you are our Father and Lord you are you are so wonderful towards us. You shower blessings on us and you you love us and you're patient with us. Lord you you know us intimately and Lord we thank you that you do love us and bless us in the way that you do. Lord, thank you for all the opportunities that you give us to witness to you at this place. Lord, we do pray that you will you'll bless us and be in each one of those things so that people can come to know you better. And Lord, we, we pray especially now for people who are struggling or, or need special care. Lord, we know that you always give special care and we pray that you continue to do that. But Lord, we pray too that, that we will reach out to people where we can do that and that we will be your comforting arms and your encouraging voice to them. Lord, we've thought about Zoe Dean and Lord, we thank you that the treatment is working. But Lord, there is still so far to go towards um, Zoe being well and we pray that that you be with her and with the family and with the continuing treatment. Lord, we've thought also about Philip and Dorothy. Lord, we miss them too. We, we pray that you will continue to be with them and help them settle in. And Lord, help each of us to think about how we can get in touch with them and, and maintain some contact so that they can feel that they're still, still loved and missed by us. And Lord, we pray too for the Dickinson family and that Alice isn't well. We pray that you'll continue to bless them. And Lord, it's, it's so good that they, that they want to be here regularly. And we pray that you'll continue to be close to them and help them to feel close to you. Lord, be with each one not mentioned in this prayer. We, we don't know the, the people in New Zealand who are struggling after the earthquake. We don't know individuals in those countries in turmoil in the Middle East. But Lord, we pray that you will be close to everyone. You know each need and each hurt. And you know what's needed for them to turn to you. And Lord, we pray that you will act in your power. And most especially, Lord, we pray that you will act in sending Jesus soon so that all these things will be, will be made new and made right and that the whole world will glorify you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you just stay seated, then we will sing the Lord hear my prayer, just to round off our, our pastoral prayer. We will take our readings uh, now. Uh, Alex will come and lead Psalms 113 and 114 for us, and then Liz will read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise. O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. 
let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? The one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of their people. He settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. Psalm 114. When Israel came out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of foreign tongue, Judah became God's sanctuary. Israel, his dominion. The sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. Why was it, O sea, that you fled, O Jordan, that you turned back, you mountains that you skipped like rams, you hills like lambs? Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool the hard rock into springs of water. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, while we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made for us this very purpose, and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him, for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen, rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again.
And so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There are some lovely verses in that chapter. And as an introduction to uh, the emblems, I would like us to just look at a few. If we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, and although it's in the middle of a dialogue, I'd like us to jump in at verse 14. And Paul writes, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Sort of feel like that verse ought to be in, I don't know, bold and, you know, several, several points higher in the font. So, you know, it's, it's a big and it's a bold statement. And Paul says basically, for every one of us who have committed our lives to God and accepted God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and love demonstrated through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. We don't live for us anymore. Our lives are not our own. There are lots of other passages within scripture that talk about us being slave-like, which I, for one, am not unaware of, but I guess in reality tend to gloss over slightly. But it basically says here that we should no longer live for us. Our life choices, our decisions, where we work, how we bring our family up, what we watch, what we say, what we do, should be defined by what God wants and not defined by where we find our comfort or our security or what the world dictates that we should do. And immediately we're we're faced with a challenge. A challenge which will affect us every day, every hour, every minute, if we truly take it on board. And he died that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. 
It's reiterating the point that we should be as Christ to those that are around us. I love this next verse. Verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. And it's at the very root, I think, of the challenge that we often face. To view our lives, the world, through God's eyes. And how difficult it is to get it wrong. I've not been here for a couple of weeks. We're away on holiday and stuff. And I I walked in here. And my very first thought as I walked in was, to be honest, I've seen more effective windows. (laughs) Now, blatantly, it's going to be a door for a start, but I guess there might be some glass in. But obviously I've got it slightly wrong. I've got the wrong idea, the wrong perspective, but oftentimes that's exactly what we do in our everyday life. We just get the wrong idea. Our goals, our desires are not, are not godly. They're not Christ-like. And that actually has the effect to, to pull us away from God. It makes us less Christ-like as we come to meet today. As we come to take bread and wine... We come to be reminded of all that God has done for us. How that was demonstrated through the life and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we might once again begin to see things through God's eyes. That we may be more Christ-like. That our perspective on life will become more godly. Verse 17, therefore if anyone is in, is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old one has gone, the new has come. Listen, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This isn't Paul going off on one, writing something that he thinks we might like to hear. This is God talking to us through this letter. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old one has gone. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not, continue, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We come to celebrate and rejoice and praise our God because we acknowledge his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. And then to take that grace and that mercy and that forgiveness out with us when we go out and when we go back into the world. That any burdens that we may carry are lifted from us. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf 
be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you. In Luke 5 verse 12, don't have to turn it up, we read, While Jesus was, one of, was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. How many of us... How many of us, when we stand and preach the gospel, whether it's from a platform or to somebody, implore or beg the person to take on board the gospel message? There's a real insight, I think, into almost the desperation that Paul has to convict the church at Corinth that they need to be Christ-like, not for his glory, not so Paul can be stuck on some pedestal because Paul recognises that we need God. Similar passage, Acts chapter 2, maybe verse 44, when Peter uh, preached at Pentecost and it said he pleaded with the crowd. You know, there's a real power and a depth of passion in their conviction to win us over for Christ. I like that. I think it's a powerful lesson. Lots of us can stand up here and, and churn out words. Lots of us do. But how many of us have the power and the passion that Paul shows in this letter? How many of us are convicted by it? It's fine. We, like I said, we could all spout words. It's not just about preaching the gospel. It's about living the gospel. How many of us live the gospel with this type of passion? We can. And we should. And as we come together to meet and to remember God's love for us. The sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ made for us on, on our behalf, out of love, the message is screamed out at us. Let go. Do you know, let go of whatever ties us back. Let go of the sin. Let go of the guilt. Let go of the burden. Forget what the world wants from us. Forget what the world says we have to do to be successful. See our lives and the world in which we live through God's eyes. Listen to the message that God gives us through these few verses, accept his love, accept his forgiveness, accept what he says to us. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Because that's what it's about. 
God making us whole. God making us Christ-like. like us to sing our next song before we take uh, the bread and wine purify my heart and in it we sing purify my heart cleanse me from within and make me holy cleanse me from my sin deep within I choose to be holy set apart for you my master ready to do your will Father, the picture that you give us, no, the reality that you give us of salvation in your lovely son Jesus, the gift that we remember now is so clear to us. It's such a simple picture of reconciliation. And yet sometimes our eyesight isn't too good and we can't see it for what it is. My prayer now, Lord, is that you open our eyes and open our ears to the shout of salvation and of hope that you are giving to us. And that in this quiet time while we eat this bread, you change us. You compel us to make a decision that we no longer live for ourselves, but for your lovely son who died for us. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and offered it to them, saying, While they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Trevor will lead our thanks for the wine. Lord Jesus. He died for us. They're easy words. As Tony said, we, we stand on this platform and we speak and we say words week in, week out. But help us focus on those words. Jesus, you died for us. So as we share this wine together, Help us really think about what that means. Help us really think about what what that asks of us. Help us, Lord, to see all the love that you have for us. Help us not to go around with our eyes closed. Help us to focus in on your grace, your love. And the fact that you've implored us, you plead with us every day to go out and do your work. Jesus, work through us and help us make today and this week different to last week. Father God, thank you. Please work through us. And as we share this wine together, help it bind us together in that work to be more like your son. Amen. 
Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. All of my days, I want to praise the wonders of your mighty love. And now words of exhortation from Tim. Nice to be with you. Nice to be up here on a sunny day in uh, Manchester. Don't have too many of those. There's nothing that makes glad the heart of a father than to see the sun belting out the bass for my Jesus, my Saviour. I do miss that back down south, let me tell you. So uh, there we are. For exhortation, I normally pray and I normally then sit and wait and listen to see what God wants to put into my mind and in my heart to share on a Sunday morning. It's been somewhat difficult this week because as I've been thinking about these things, it's been against the backdrop of all of the news that we've been seeing on the television, on the radio, on the internet. Of course, I'm talking about the turmoil in the Middle East and North Africa. It was there again this morning with Gaddafi's mob trying to retake an oil port and succeeding of the British SAS, believe it or not, being captured somewhere in eastern Libya. That was on the news at nine o'clock. And so we've been used to this year, haven't we, in the last few months, some amazing scenes on the news virtually every day of turmoil in Tunisia, of those scenes, those unforgettable scenes of that square in Egypt and Cairo, of Bahrain, of Oman, of Yemen, of Jordan, of Algeria, of Libya, Saudi Arabia, Darfur in Sudan, of Ethiopia, and of Somalia. Also in the background, did you notice, we mentioned it this morning, was the earthquake in Chile, in um, Christchurch in New Zealand. We've seen other earthquakes, haven't we, in the last 12 months or so, in Chile, in Pakistan, and in China. And more recently, we've been used to seeing on our TV screens the the flooding in Pakistan, and more recently in in northern Australia. And uh, I'm sure you, like me, have sat there looking at these events, thinking these are massive, massive world events that are taking place every single day in front of our very eyes. And as I've been sitting and listening to what God perhaps want to put in my mind and in my heart to share with you this morning. I've been conscious that when was the last time I actually heard anything from a platform about prophecy? John's going to talk about about it tonight. But when was the last time you heard that? When was the last time you heard something along the lines of which our early forefathers would have been jumping up and down about? I suggest to you, very rarely. I guess it depends where we are in the community and in the world, doesn't it? When you go to certain places and it's all the latest Hillsong material, as if that's the most important thing. In other places it may be whether or not we use fair trade coffee, as if that's the most important thing. And in other places too, it's whether or not you're going to attend the weekly study of Revelation 
as if that's the most important thing. I couldn't but help think this week as to where the balance is in our spiritual lives. I kind of thought Tony was painting a balanced idea this morning of our priorities and how Christ-like we must be. But I guess it depends where we've come from. It depends where we go to every Sunday as to what balance we actually get in our spiritual diet. Because where we are will often depend, uh, will often dictate the emphasis, whether it's the ecclesia we're at. And even that is made up perhaps of different ages, which in itself can be a problem, of personalities, of the other meetings that we actually, as an ecclesia, go to. Where is our balance? Seemed to me to be the message that God was putting in my mind this week. Wasn't what I intended, let me tell you that. But it seemed to be, the more I watched the news, the more I thought in my mind of this whole issue. And so it seems that, by way of exhortation this morning, my mind was directed as I sat and listened and prayed and waited for an answer. The more I listened and watched the news, the more it came to me of what perhaps we should be sharing this morning. Perhaps the strongest message that we can gain this week, apart from what we've already done, is to remind ourselves of the importance of a balanced spiritual diet. So that we can be healthier. So that we can be wiser. So that the anchor to our souls remains firm and allows us to go out and redeem the time. And so this morning I, I looked through the wadge of papers that form some of my exhortations recently uh, and it seemed to me that God was saying, no Tim, not that one about the miners coming up out of a hole in the ground in Chile, No, Tim, not that one about where East meets West. The only place on the planet where that is possible. And no, Tim, it's not that one about the glory of God. So I've had to put all of those away, listening to what God has been talking to me about this week. I did think earlier I might share something about Noah and the ark, because God has blessed us at Newbury with a a wonderful holiday club. Uh, in, in, the, um, in the February half term. But it seemed to me that God was saying, no, I want you to talk about someone called Muammar Gaddafi, who's mad, bad and dangerous. And I want you to go and look at the pamphlet that was written by Brother Stephen Palmer 26 years ago. So I did. So this morning... This message of encouragement is, I guess, one of seeing the world, to pick up a phrase that Tony used, through God's eyes. Let's uh, have a look at this little part of our spiritual diet that we perhaps rarely spend time in. I guess my overall theme is lessons for the last days. You might like to pick up your Bibles and come with me to Luke chapter 21. Just spend a few thoughts this morning if you like, redressing the balance in our lives to some extent and in the light of what we'll go back to our homes and see on the telly this evening. 
What does God see in it all? What is behind all of this is really where I'm coming from. Luke 21, where the words of Jesus, you know, he had a lot to tell us about being like him. He also had a lot to tell us about the latter days. There will be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars, says Jesus. And on the earth, distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, for the things that are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. I can't wait to see Jesus. Face to face, I can't wait for that. I know that it will be in my lifetime, come what may. I know that. But here he is, reminding us to look at the things that are coming upon the earth. And if you read around that little uh, set of verses I've read, you'll see, of course, a lot of it has to do with the history of Jerusalem. Again, when was the last time we heard a talk about that? Jerusalem and its fortunes are just as important to us as the latest Hillsong. Matthew 24 is another little passage that came into my mind as I was thinking about this message from God today. Matthew 24, and it came out of the Holiday Club, really. It was something I might have spoken about in a different context. Verse 36, we're told that of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, going on the internet, going to work, going down the local football ground, whatever it was they were doing, right up until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. And so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. So we see a picture that Jesus wants us to know about men's hearts failing them for fear for the things that are coming upon the face of the earth. It has to do with the, with the fortunes of Jerusalem. And it's at a time when there's violence and greed of men and women with no thought for God. And so in terms of the lessons of the last days, my thoughts turn to the Libyan uprising. Do you know, I've never spoken like this from a platform before. It was a challenge for me to make something of what we're seeing today. I wonder if you'd come with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 12 because I just want to spend just a couple of minutes thinking about what's on the television today. Libya. I think what a strange subject for a Sunday morning. Okay. Well, depending on what version you've got, I guess you'll find various... Um, Various words. In chapter 12 we find the little passage I want us to look at. Uh, in the King James Version, or the New King James, you'll probably have the word Libya that's showing somewhere in the, in the scripture you're looking at. It might be the words put or foot, or it might be the word lubim, 
All these are Hebrew words. But either way, no matter what the word is, we realise and understand that what we're talking about is a near neighbour of the Egyptians and also of the people of Cush, of Sudan and Libya. And it seems that in the Old Testament time, we come across Libya a fair bit. Just to pick out just a couple of verses, and here's one in chapter 12 and verse 3. And we read that uh, the Egyptians were coming against Jerusalem in the time of Rehoboam. There was 1,200 chariots, there were 60,000 horsemen, and people without number, they were mercenaries. And where were they from? They were from Libya, the Lubin, and also the Ethiopians. Isn't that remarkable? That in the days of Rehoboam, the Libyans and the Ethiopians were mercenaries. They were being paid to come and fight by the Egyptians against God's people in Jerusalem. Remarkable. Go over to Ezekiel chapter 30. We'll just take a few references from Ezekiel, so we'll uh, cluster them together. Ezekiel chapter 30. And we find a very similar thing happening here in verse 5. And this is a lament about the fall of Egypt, of Cairo. See how topical this could be. Verse 5. Ethiopia, Libya, Lydia, all the mingled people. Chub, I like that word, chub. I don't know what that is, but it's a good word. Chub. And the men of the lands who are allied shall fall with them by the sword. The point is, there's another Bible passage to do with the nations around Israel, of which Libya is one. Just go back a couple of chapters to chapter 27, because not only were the Libyans in the time of the scriptures mercenaries for the Egyptians, they were also mercenaries for the Phoenicians. Verse 10. Again, a lament over Tyre this time. The Phoenicians. Verse 10. Those from... Oh, Persia, Lydia, it's that word again, and Libya. We're in your army as men of war. They hung shield and helmet in you and they gave splendour to you and so on. And throughout the Old Testament, it seems the Libyans are mentioned in the context of warfare with God's people. Normally in alliance, it seems, with the nations round about. And I thought that was quite Interesting and topical. But what of today? Well, we're left in no doubt, are we, that the Bible gives us a clear picture of the world events when Jesus Christ will be visible in the earth again. Go over to chapter 38, that well-known passage. I'm sure you've probably got there before me. But it, you know, it does us well to remind us of these things at a time like today. Ezekiel 38 is a picture of a massive confederacy of nations that are invading the land of Israel in the latter days. And in verse 5 we see those names again. Persia, Ethiopia and Libya are with them. All of them with shield and helmet. All of them with T-34 tanks and missiles is how we'd read it today. Isn't that interesting? For Persia read Iran. For Ethiopia, read Sudan. You might have Kush there, but it's talking about Ethiopia and Sudan. And for Put, if you have it there, read Libya. Isn't that remarkable? 
I'd like to read to you a little passage from the book of Daniel, from the message version. Because tucked away in Daniel, we find mention of Libya and Ethiopia yet again. And it's at the end of that rather complex chapter that seems to be talking about the invasions of God's land up and down the centuries, uh, from the time of Daniel right up to the present day. Uh, And the message tells us that in the final wrap-up of this story, you can tell it's the message, can't you? In the final wrap-up of this story, the king of the south will confront him, but the king of the north will come at him like a tornado, unleashing chariots and horses and an armada of ships. He'll blow away anything in his path as he enters the beautiful land. People will fall before him like dominoes. Only Edom, Moab, read Jordan for that probably, and a few Ammonites will escape. As he reaches out, grabbing country after country, not even Cairo will be exempt. The Egyptians... He will confiscate the treasuries of Egyptian gold and silver and other valuables. The Libyans and Ethiopians will fall in with him. Then disturbing reports will come in from the north and east that will throw him into a panic. Towering in rage, he'll rush to stamp out the threat. But he'll no sooner have pitched camp between the Mediterranean Sea and Jerusalem. All those royal tents and he'll meet his end. And not a soul around who can help. Isn't that amazing prophecy for our day? Libya and Ethiopia will feature in God's purpose at some point. I think it's rather fantastic that at nine o'clock on the News 24 this morning, I was looking at evidence as to the truth of God's word. Two and a half thousand years ago, it seems to me, the Bible has predicted that Libya and Ethiopia would firstly exist as distinct peoples at the time of Christ's return. Secondly, they would be allies of Iran and the King of the North, whoever that might be. And thirdly, that Libya and Ethiopia with Iran and the King of the North will attack and invade the land of Israel. Ooh, that's coming alive a little bit now, isn't it? Because did you notice earlier this week that whilst all the mess was going on in Tripoli, a couple of Iranian warships were sailing up the Suez Canal and then up the coast of Israel to dock in Syria. Astounding events where I think we are seeing at the moment. Who knows where they will lead? Perhaps some of what we've been reading about is where they are going. See, we're talking about a downtrodden area of North Africa, aren't we? Subject to, since Bible times, a wave upon wave of invaders in North Africa, of the Greeks, of the Carthaginians, of the Romans, of the Vandals, of the Byzantines, the Arabs, the Turks. More recently... The invasion by the Italians in 1932, wanting some sort of empire. And uh, the Africa Corps, with the Germans in the Second World War. And they were fighting the British Eighth Army backwards and forwards across the land of Libya. But verse 8 of chapter 38 tells us something else. 
that after many days you will be visited, it says, in the latter years you will be brought, you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel which had long been desolate and they're dwelling safely. Of course it's talking there, it would seem, about the birth of the nation of Israel. And yet, just three years after Israel was born, Libya came into existence. I didn't know that. 1951, Libya was declared an independent state by the UN. And it was the world's poorest country. And it was pro-Western, apparently, until 1959, when I was two. There was a discovery of oil in Libya. We've seen some of that in the last week, haven't we? The oil ports that are being the subject of fighting at the moment. Uh, and it took on a more pro-Soviet in those days, Russian stance, and became militarised. And apparently in 1968, Libya produced more oil in the whole of the Middle East than Saudi Arabia. I didn't know that either. Isn't it amazing? But with it came Arab nationalism and an anti-Israel stance. In 1969, a guy called Muammar Gaddafi ousted someone called King Idris. Now, I, I don't remember that. I was more interested into Sabutio football in those days and uh, cricket, watching Wes Hall of the West Indies and so on. I was more interested in things like that than I was with uh, what was going on in Libya. And uh, apparently, ever since then, he's nationalised the foreign oil interests. And so we come to Joel chapter 3. Let's turn quickly to Joel, last one there. It's one of those books you can never find when you want to find it quickly. Joel chapter 3 is probably one of my favourite chapters in the whole of the Old Testament for the imagery that it paints of the latter days. But in chapter 3, again, it's talking about the latter days, the days that we are witnessing, the days we are seeing on the television screen even uh, this very day. Verse 1, it talks about the time when Israel would be re-established as a nation. And at the same time, we've seen that Libya was as well. In verse 9, we read about a time when nations were going to spend more money on warfare than they would on agriculture. And that is true of Libya, isn't it? And many others. Oil in Libya has been spent on arms. And over the years... Just think about it. Libya became a state sponsor of terrorism. The IRA. The Lockerbie disaster of mines in the Red Sea. And in the 1980s of political assassinations in Europe. Ronald Reagan declaring war on the terrorists of Libya in 1981 apparently. Of the US Air Force shooting down Libyan warplanes. Of 1984, none of us can forget that little upturned policeman's helmet in West London when Yvonne Fletcher was shot dead outside of the Libyan embassy. And two years later, we had the bombing of President Gaddafi's tent complex in Tripoli. In verse 10, beat your plowshares into swords your pruning hooks into spears, and let the weak say, I am strong. Isn't that what Libya's been doing? The poorest nation on earth is standing up against the strongest. And we're still seeing it this morning. And so we come to today, don't we? 
We've seen the Egyptian revolution, the Libyan uprising, which is still going on, of this mad, bad and dangerous person, of Iranian warships going through the Suez Canal, the tension in Israel, the Arabian Peninsula beginning to be aflame with revolution. Of Sudan, we've seen the famine in Sudan, the warfare in Darfur, and the split in the south. There's always the famine of Ethiopia, ever with us. And in Somalia, we are seeing pirates of world oil tankers. And I'm being asked the question at work, does my insurance program cover me if my goods are stolen by pirates in Somalia? And so what we are seeing is Persia, Libya and Ethiopia before our very eyes. So, slightly unusual exhortation from me, not one that I intended to give, but I hope that it will help us to understand and to see the wonder of what's going on on the TV screens every day. But I can't sit down without thinking something a little bit more practical, something a little bit more, as it were, relevant for my own life. Because otherwise it's just an academic exercise really, isn't it? And I thought of six lessons that hopefully we can all take from the thoughts that I've had this week. Firstly, that the Libya uprising this week is but one sign of the coming of Jesus. We've looked at prophecies in Ezekiel and in Joel. We've heard Jesus talking about this time as well in Luke all warning us to be ready for the coming of the King. The second lesson is that to be prepared is to learn what God requires of us. In other words, to set his kingdom as our number one priority in life, because surely there is no time to lose. No matter what, as I said earlier, I believe that the coming of Jesus Christ will be in our lifetime, whenever we have lived. Thirdly, we've been left two shining examples by men from Libya and Ethiopia. Perhaps you'd just like to quickly look at our last couple of references. One's in Luke 23. We meet a Libyan, a man from Libya, who was there at the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, I thought this was quite an interesting little outcome, really, of, of, of such a, you know, a, a theme as this morning. That at the crucifixion of Jesus, there was a Libyan. And he was present there. For whatever reason, we, we don't know. But he met Jesus. And it's in verse 20, 24. Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who from rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. And as they led him away, they lay hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. One verse, one Libyan, and he was from that region around Benghazi. What he was doing in Jerusalem, I don't know. But he was there. And they put the cross of Jesus Christ on the back of that Libyan. 
and he carried it for his Lord. The the other uh, interesting passage is in Acts chapter 8, where this time, as I'm sure you'll know, we meet an Ethiopian. Isn't it amazing? Libya and Ethiopia, right the way through Scripture. And this one, of course, is the uh, famous eunuch of Ethiopia, very important man who'd gone up to Jerusalem to worship, and he was reading a passage from the prophecy of Isaiah. It just so happened he was reading about Jesus Christ in Isaiah 53. I wonder if he'd have read something like we've been reading about Libya and Ethiopia. Who knows? But he read his Bible, and in in that passage we know so well, he asked to be baptised. And he went back to Ethiopia rejoicing, and he took the gospel with him which is why there are Christians in Ethiopia. Isn't that amazing? At the, at the crucifixion and the early church, there was a Libyan and there was an Ethiopian. And he was baptised into the kingdom of God. Fourthly, fourth lesson, we've only got two choices in life. The uncertain pleasures of an anxious and violent world or the permanent joy and peace of the kingdom of God. Fifthly, the only way to have life more abundantly and to inherit the blessings of God's kingdom and everlasting life is to learn, believe and obey the truth of the gospel. And lastly, there is little time left. Who knows what our newsreel is going to be telling us in a few months' time? Who knows? No idea but we know where it is all heading, however long it takes. There is little time left, so let's use it wisely together, just like Simon did and the Ethiopian. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Irrespective, irrespective of the situations that we find ourselves in, that change maybe day in, day out, month in, year in, God does not change. His message does not change. His love does not change. The passage we read earlier on uh, from Second Corinthians chapter 5, Uh, Paul writes talking of himself we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God they're basically displaying godly characteristics do you know he was a Paul's a person just like you and I are an ordinary man who committed his life to Christ and Christ worked through him to do God's work. And when we read the words of another person, an ordinary person, imploring us to come to know God's love and God's message, he's being Christ-like, he's being God's mouthpiece, he's showing us what God is like. God is imploring us. To understand his love. To understand what he has done for us. So that we 
can become whole. We will finish our service in prayer. Peter will do that for us after we've sung our last our last hymn which looks forward to the time of Christ's return. The days are quickly flying and Christ will come again with all his saints attending triumphant in his train. In tune with the things that you want from us, we feel that we know you and that you can use us to do things that you want. Other times, Lord, we perhaps, well, maybe self indulgently, but wallow in a sense of our own worthlessness and how. Nothing we do ever seems to be right and it doesn't matter how hard we try, we can't get there and it doesn't work. And yet Lord, the answer to both of those things is the same. We need your return. We need you to save us from ourselves and our self-indulgence. And we need you to add to the joy that we have in the moments of our closeness to you. As the hymn put it, we need the sweet day of consummation, the adding together. So that you and we are finally one. Almost feel at times that we sort of play at being one in the meantime. I know that's not what you said. You said that we are. Um, but it doesn't always feel like that. And it's easy to be misled by our emotions and not see beyond them the reality. And so, whether the day seems bright to us, rare though that is in Manchester, or whether the night seems dark and whether that's because of the personal burdens that we carry or because we look at the world and we see um, things going downhill as you said they would before Jesus returns. Lord, we pray that you will make the central thing of our heart that desire for you to return, for your kingdom to be established and that in that gap, that window of opportunity that we have to reconcile people to you because that's the job you've given us to do while we're waiting. Father, we pray that you will bless our efforts to serve you, that you will encourage us when we find the going tough and that most of all, you will send the Lord Jesus soon to establish your kingdom. Amen.